Well, we continue uh, to work through the book of Judges on Sunday mornings. And if we haven't realized it yet, we, we quickly realize why it is that this book, this book of Judges, is so underrepresented in the pages of children's Bibles. <laughs> With its honest portrayal of the decline of the moral and spiritual life of Israel, we encounter really difficult things here in the book of Judges. We encounter really difficult events, and we encounter really difficult people. This morning, we encounter a man named Jephthah. Jephthah is a judge. He's the second to last major judge. The only major judge left after Jephthah is Samson. Was that a sigh of relief I heard from you all? knowing that we're oh so close to the end of the judge's tunnel. And Jephthah is unpleasant. Jephthah is difficult. Let me tell you the story. Let me try to uh, see if I can't summarize the events of chapter 10, verse 6, through chapter 11, verse 40. Simply put, Israel, after two faithful judges, Israel does what Israel does in the book of Judges. They fell again into idolatry. They forsake Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, the God of the covenant, the God of their deliverance throughout the early half of Judges. And instead of worshiping and being faithful to Yahweh, they worshiped false gods and false deities. They turned their back on Yahweh. Now, what God does in this situation throughout the course of the book of Judges is he turns the people of Israel then over to foreign oppressors. Very specifically here in Judges chapter 10, he takes the people of Israel and he gives them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. For 18 years, we are told that the Philistines and the Ammonites together crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. The people of Israel then, of course, cried out to the Lord. For the first time in the book of Judges, we actually hear the words come out of Israel's mouth, we have sinned against you. And God leads them deeper into repentance to the point where in submission to him, for the first time, they say to the, peop the, the people of Israel, say to God, you do what is right in your eyes, but please deliver us. And then they actually uh, put their money where their mouths were, they did away with, they put away the foreign gods and turned solely to Yahweh himself. But there's still a problem here. Mostly in the narrative, or uh, quite often in the narrative of the book of Judges, this is the point where you would find God raise up a judge after the people of Israel have, have sort of repented, confessed, turned back to God, sought his help. That's when God raised up Gideon. That's when God raised up Ehud and Barak and, and Deborah. Here, God doesn't take that action. Here, even after the confession of the people of Israel, here there is still a problem. The Ammonites had still come to battle, and Israel was still without a leader. That leader is introduced in chapter 11. In verses 1 through 3, Jephthah is brought onto the scene. He's described as a mighty warrior. He's described as an illegitimate son. He's described as an outcast and a leader of men. He and his band of criminals seem to have been something of an ancient world street gang. And this is the man, this is the one whom the leaders of Gilead approach to be their general in the face of war. Jephthah was a warrior driven by self-interest, driven by his own desires. 
He did what was right in his own eyes. He looked out for himself. And in the conversation with the elders of Gilead, he drove a really hard bargain. The elders of Gilead had promised that whoever would lead them into war would become the leader, the head of the clan, the tribe, would become the head of the people. But when they first approached Jephthah, of course, they tried to short sell that, right? Get a little bit more than they have to pay for. But Jephthah holds them accountable. He, he drives a hard bargain. He refuses to be their leader until he received assurance from the leaders of Gilead that he would be made their leader, that he would indeed be the head of all Gilead. That's how Jephthah became the judge. It's interesting, I think. It says something about the people of Israel. It says something about Jephthah that in this entire commissioning narrative from chapter 11, not once is God mentioned. Not once is God mentioned as choosing, selecting, calling up, calling out, commissioning, and sending Jephthah. And in fact, it isn't until Jephthah uses the name of the Lord, and it isn't until the leaders of Gilead use the name of the Lord as silent witness, as as sort of a down payment for their vow, that God enters into this entire narrative. It's interesting. Jephthah then now fully in charge, attempted to uh, negotiate with the king of the Ammonites. Just as he was a negotiator with the people of Gilead, now he's negotiating with the king of the Ammonites. He argues that the Israelites were in the right, the Ammonites were in the wrong. He argues this in the latter half of chapter 11 from a historical perspective, a, a legal perspective, from a really bad theological perspective. His attempts at negotiation failed, and so war it was. And here is where, this is where here, in chapter 11, verse 29, this is where the narrative takes what I think is an unexpected twist. First, as war approaches, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. Here we see some grace from God, right? However little attention the leaders of Gilead had paid to the Lord in commissioning Jephthah, we see here God's approval of him as the Spirit of the Lord came to clothe Jephthah for the mission of deliverance. He is God's man. How do we know that? Because he carries the Spirit of the Lord, a free gift put upon him. He then seemingly goes about in the spirit, in the power of the Spirit. He seemingly goes about raising up an army, preparing to confront the Ammonites. But then we come to the 30th verse of chapter 11, and we see tragedy. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Perhaps operating out of his prior personal experience of rejection, Jephthah sought assurance from Yahweh by promising to give him something precious as a sacrifice. The horrible irony in this is that Jephthah made a vow he didn't need to make. He had everything he needed. Yahweh had given him everything he needed to to win victory. He gave him the Holy Spirit. But instead, Jephthah sought assurance from Yahweh by promising to give him something precious as a sacrifice. He is doing what uh, he is effectively trying to bribe Yahweh. 
Yahweh, if I give you this, then you will be bound and obligated to give me that. As he did with the elders of Gilead and with the king of Ammon, Jephthah here is attempting to bargain with God to negotiate favorable terms to assure his own success. And Israel's victory, which is given to them by Yahweh, the, the narrator of the events tells us, Yahweh gave the Ammonites into the Israelites' hands. The victory of Israel, given to them by Yahweh, is overshadowed by what happens when Jephthah returns to his home. And knowing his vow, we don't have to imagine very hard what occurs within his heart and his mind when the first one to emerge from the door of his home was his daughter. His only child, we're told. The conversation that happens after his daughter, or with his daughter, Jephthah expresses sorrow and grief, not for her, but for himself. And after a brief waiting period, Jephthah did with her according to his vow that he had made. The narrator tells us in verse 39. Meaning, Jephthah offered his daughter as a burnt offering. He sacrificed her. Not children's Bible material. What are we supposed to make out of this? What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to understand this? Let's attempt to understand first what Jephthah was offering and then let's see if we can understand something of his motivations. There are and there will be attempts to maintain that Jephthah was intending an animal sacrifice when he made his vow. Thinking that one of his farm animals would come out of the house first when he returned. I understand those attempts, but they're problematic to say the least. Uh, first, the Hebrew words and the grammar used here in this particular verse are more naturally used in connection to a human person and not to an animal. Second, if Jephthah had intended to offer a sacrifice of a, a, a sheep, when his daughter came out, he would, not have been bowed, uh, he would not have found himself bound to that vow and offered his daughter. He would have waited until the sheep came out. And third, who greets a returning warrior? Is it a sheep? Is it a cow? No, it's his family. It's his servants. And so while Jephthah may not have intended his daughter, his only child, to be the object of sacrifice, it seems as though he did intend a person. The other question is, did he really follow through with it? There's going to be, there are, and there always will be attempts to say that Jephthah did not actually sacrifice her, but rather enrolled her into perpetual service at the tabernacle. Except for there's no historical evidence of anything like that. Except for it was unheard of for an ancient world sort of nun system within the people of Israel. The most natural explanation is that he did exactly what he said he would do, which is burn her as a sacrifice. But why? Why would he do this? Jephthah, a preacher, Haddon Robinson, once said, like the other judges, was a man of his times, and the times were not good. And about the power of social context, famed psychologist Philip Zimbardo writes, most of us can undergo significant character transformations when we are caught up in the crucible of social forces. What we imagine we would do when we are outside that crucible may bear little resemblance to who we become and what we are capable of doing once we're inside the network. What was Jephthah's network? What were his times like? They're Canaanized times of ignorance. 
If you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 10, verse 6, very specifically. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Just about the only God the people of Israel did not serve was the God of the Exodus, was Yahweh. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The list of the gods and the nations here at chapter 10, verse 6, point out the depth of the corruption of Israel. It points out the height of their canonization and their ignorance of God, of Yahweh. Already reflected in his negotiations with the king of Ammon, Jephthah considers the idols to be on the same level as Yahweh, as real as Yahweh. And though he recognizes Yahweh to be the judge, Jephthah reckons that the idols, these false deities, have real power to give and take away. A man of his idolatrous times, Jephthah attempted to find favor with the Lord in the ways of the times, the pagan means and methods he knew best. Buying it, negotiating it, working for it. And something incredibly horrifying about that list from chapter 10, verse 6, is the inclusion of the gods of Moab and the gods of Ammon. The god of Moab was Chemosh. The god of Ammon was Milcom, sometimes referred to as Molech. History testifies to the fact that these two deities, Chemosh and Molech, required human, indeed child, sacrifice. So it is then, in chapter 10, verse 6, what we see is that Israel had descended to the depths of idolatry, dallying with the false gods that required the blood of humans in order to receive favor and blessing. And Jephthah goes to Yahweh with that. Because he doesn't know him. Because he doesn't know God. He may know a lot about God, but he doesn't know Yahweh himself. He may know the historical acts of God, but he doesn't know the character of God. He may know what God has done in the past for Israel, but he doesn't know Yahweh's holiness. And he acts out of his ignorance and out of his distrust. Jephthah, let me be very clear here. Jephthah was absolutely wrong to make the vow. He sinned in making this vow. Because in making the vow of human sacrifice, he was breaking the law. Yahweh had made himself abundantly clear in his law about child human sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, God specifically says, you shall not give. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5, lists out punishment for child sacrifice. And in Jeremiah chapter 32, the Lord, speaking through the prophet, calls it an abomination. Why did he do it then? Why did Jephthah do it? Because he was apparently thinking that all deities were the same and, there was a, and that they were to be approached in the same manner to receive favor from them. He thought Yahweh was no different than Chemosh and you had to do the same thing to get favor from them. And so he offers a child. Jephthah did what was right in his own eyes, operating out of his ignorance of God, having been raised in a syncretistic Israel with a buffet of deities to worship, Jephthah, in his ignorance, approached God as if he was just another deity. Let me be cl very clear on a second point. Jephthah was wrong to fulfill the vow. He sinned. Again, he didn't know God, and he didn't know God's law. There were provisions in the law for release from vows. 
And there were provisions to release one from a vow hastily made or improperly made. He clearly doesn't know God. He doesn't know God's law. He doesn't trust God. And he sins. Now, this does not negate his responsibility, or it just really led him to compound his sin. Tim Keller says this, he sees God as basically like the pagan gods, a being whose favor can be earned through flattery and lavish sacrifices. And we have to see it. Yahweh is silent. Yahweh is nowhere pleased with this vow. Nowhere is it said in the narrative that he's happy, pleased, and accepting of the sacrifice itself. The horrible irony is that Yahweh had given everything Jephthah needed before a vow was ever made. Jephthah did what was right in his own eyes and operating out of his ignorance of God. He approached God as if he were just another deity. He approached God as a pagan deity with pagan notions of earning the favor of God through works righteousness. Anyone else ever done this? Anyone here ever attempted to make a deal with God? Surely I cannot be the only one. I'm tired of always being the negative example, people. God, if you just do this, I promise I'll do that. In an interview, Academy Award-winning actress Lupita Nyong'o told this story. She says, I remember a time when I, too, felt unbeautiful. I put on the TV and only saw pale skin. I got teased and taunted about my nightshaded skin. And my one prayer to God, the miracle worker, was that I would wake up lighter-skinned. I tried to negotiate with God. I told him I would stop stealing sugar cubes at night if he gave me what I wanted. I would listen to my mother's every word and never lose my school sweater again if he just made me a little lighter. But I guess God was unimpressed with my bargaining chips because he never listened. Granted that this kind of negotiation with God is much less than that of Jephthah. Isn't it the same in style, if not in substance? And isn't this nothing less than a pagan notion of works righteousness, of earning favor, of fulfilling a contract, of negotiating the best terms possible for yourself, of purchasing the favor of God? Jephthah was a man of his time, and his attempts to serve Yahweh went askew because he approached Yahweh in the means and the methods of his times, pagan worship. Are we any different? Is that a question even worth asking? What are our times? And how do our times affect the way we attempt to approach God? Are the times in which we live less filled with idols and false gods? No, clearly not. And while perhaps modern idols are less grotesque in appearance, they are no less demanding and they are certainly no less bloodthirsty. Modern idols demand to be served, to be sated, and then perhaps they will give over a blessing. Even more problematic is the notion, perhaps we may think modern, but clearly reflected in Jephthah's thinking, that all religions are the same, that all gods are the same. Perhaps you've heard the phrases, the different religions are just paths leading up the same mountain. Or perhaps you've heard something to the, uh, uh, something like the, the different religions are just different cars traveling the same highway. What is implied in these statements is that they're all just the same. What's implied in Jephthah's action is that they're all just the same. 
But to truly know God is to recognize that there is a fundamental difference between the God of the Bible and every other so-called divine being. Besides the ontological distinction regarding the reality of existence, the God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, gives, and every other so-called divine being takes, consumes. Idols take first and then promise blessing after, or they give a blessing with the demand for blood later. But the God of the Bible, as we heard last week, is a God of gracious hospitality who gives. God gives grace and mercy, and to truly know God is to know him as the gracious giver with whom you really can't negotiate because we have nothing to offer him. The God who does not demand sacrifice from those who would worship him, but the God who gives sacrifice so that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The triune God of creation, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives of himself that sinful humanity might be reconciled to him and know him in truth. This is grace. This is favor. This is not something we merit. It is not something that we earn. It is not something that we can negotiate for or purchase. It is received. It is accepted. In his book called Knowing God, J.I. Packer puts it this way. We do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. Jephthah's tragic vow came out of his thinking, came out of his ignorance, came out of his ignorance of God, the gracious giver, and came out of his thinking that all gods were the same and that what other gods demanded, Yahweh desired. And we can do that same thing. For example, if we worship the idol of money, then we will believe that to serve the idol, we will have to work really, really hard, work really long hours, always be hustling and sacrifice children, family, and friends to serve that idol. And then we can carry that same approach, those same means and methods over to our approach to God. For example, if we say to the triune God, I'll give you X number of hours this week, but in return, you'll give me salvation. Or I'll give you X number of dollars this week, and in return, you'll give me uh, a a greater amount. It seems to me that this is a works righteousness approach to God that is fundamentally pagan, the the same thing that Jephthah was guilty of, and it stems out of not knowing God. God, if you bless me with this new business deal, I'll go to church this week, and I'll be really, really good. I, I won't swear as much. I won't watch as much TV or drink as much beer. If we do that, if we're trying to negotiate and make contracts with God, what we're showing is that like Jephthah, we don't know God either. The core of the issue is that Jephthah doesn't know God. The problem is ignorance. What's the solution? In Jephthah's day and age, the solution would have been repentance, would have been turning away from the idols and turning towards God. It would have been finding the proper means to worship him in the law as it's set out and established through Moses. The solution for us, the solution of ignorance here, is truly knowing God. But how do we do that? How do we truly know God? How do we truly recognize him as the gracious and generous giver? I want to offer you two solutions or two ways to know God. The first is Jesus. 
We heard this read in our gospel this morning, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The whole point, the whole purpose of Jesus' uh, ministry, his life, his resurrection, his ascension, his death, the whole purpose of all of that was to make God known and truly known. And so if we want to know God, to truly know God, we must know Jesus. Jesus, the author of Hebrews, tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, is the exact representation, the imprint of God and makes God truly known. So we need to know Jesus to know God, to avoid this ignorant works righteousness approach. We need to have Jesus revealed. The other side of that is that we need the Bible. We need to be people of the Bible so that Jesus is the revelation of God in the Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit. This means we need to pay attention to what has been written because the Bible is God's revelation of himself and his actions. It is in the pages of Scripture that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is revealed. The Bible is a primary means, if not the primary means, of of knowing him today. J.I. Packer again has said, knowing God involves first First, listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to oneself. Approaching God rightly requires rightly knowing God. And God, who is the gracious giver, has given us the word that we might do exactly that. Know him rightly as he has revealed himself to be. In order to uh, not be a part of Jephthah's folly, in order to not approach God in some sort of pagan notion of earning, of, fi- of, of meriting, of buying, we must know Jesus, we must know the Word, and there we will truly know ourselves. And so let us be the people of the Word. Let us grow in our knowledge of God through the reading and studying of the Scripture. God has given us His Scriptures for the revelation of Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so may we be a people who hear them, Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which God has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we so avoid Jephthah's folly. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we do praise you and give you thanks. Lord, you are the gracious giver. And you make yourself known. We praise you for your gifts to us, word and sacrament. We praise you that we may know you through Jesus Christ and that your Holy Spirit leads us into a depth of knowledge and understanding that we cannot achieve on our own. Lord, come and be at work in us that we may know you rightly, approach you rightly, and know ourselves as recipients of your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship as response to the word of God.